Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Greetings, fellow diggers. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Christian Swain here, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco. In Deeper Digs, we dig a little deeper, go a little further with our exploration of diverse topics that tie in with rock and roll. It's the companion show to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast, or as we like to call it, the RNRAP, Rock and Roll Advanced Placement, folks. The RNRAP is our overview, our rock history project. Deeper Digs is where we stop and take a closer look at single topics, people, places, and things that tie in with the larger narrative. All of our podcasts, and we've got a nice little family of them now, can be found at our website, rockandrollarchaeology.com. Podcasts, show notes, social media links, and our favorite, the donate link, bookmark it. Please stop by from time to time. Thanks, and let's get going. Here at the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, we especially enjoy meeting other folks who are engaged in the same kind of work we're engaged in, chronicling the history of rock music, telling the story. Being rock and roll storytellers ourselves, we enjoy meeting a fellow practitioner. If you will forgive us the conceit, it's always special for us. And we try to learn as much as we possibly can when we get those opportunities. And friends, we landed a good one for this show. Bill Bentley, who's here to talk about his new book, Smithsonian Rock and Roll, Live and Unseen. Bill has worn a lot of different hats over the years. Musician, music journalist, record producer, and record company executive. We'll get to that in the interview and more. But the big topic today is the big book, Smithsonian Rock and Roll, Live and Unseen. It's a great, big, gorgeous coffee table book packed with hundreds of never-before-published photos that accompany Bill's superb narrative. The writing is strong. The research is impeccable. It's the Smithsonian gang. They know what they're doing. And all the great photos are just a feast for the eyes. And get this, it's reasonably priced. 40 bucks retail. If you've got a rock and roller in your life, and who doesn't, uh, this would be a wonderful holiday gift. Just a suggestion. Friends, I really try not to play favorites, but but I gotta say at this time, I loved this interview. Bill has a real gift for storytelling. So let's do it. Let's meet Bill Bentley and talk about life in rock and roll and this terrific new book. I seen your picture. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Bill Bentley. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me. You bet. So uh, 
Let's start and tell the diggers a little bit about yourself. Uh, you're not new to the rock and roll world, are you? No, you know, I started uh, listening and watching rock and roll when I was five. When five? I was five years old. It was 1955, and I was in Galveston wow. with my wow, parents. Right at the birth. Huh? Right at the birth, man. I was in Galveston with my parents, and there was a man playing a 55-gallon oil drum on the street. And he was playing it with mallets filled with BBs, and it just completely pulled me in. And he sang along and whistled. And I thought, like, this is the greatest thing I ever heard. And then about six months later, Elvis Presley was on Ed Sullivan. And oh, I went, like, yeah. that's where it's going, man. That's, that's a it. big moment right that, there. That was a huge moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just I, I fell in love with it. Like, right from the start of seeing Elvis on TV, I went, like, that's, that's my life. So how, how do you, you know that when you're six? But it, I is, it. it is crazy. But you run into people like that, that, uh, you know, I was not lucky and knew what I wanted to do when I was six. And most of our audience probably feels the same way. But, you know, you do run into people every once in a while that go, oh, no, uh, from this time, um, this moment on, I knew exactly this is what I wanted to do. So you you knew from that moment you wanted to be in the circus. Yeah. And I think it's also a little bit like a calling in life. Like when you when you're very lucky and you know what you want to do or mm-hmm. what you feel the most and you follow that your whole life. I think that's a huge, uh, it's just a huge gift to have. And I never took it for granted because no matter how weird life got or how strange the music business got, I always remembered it was the music that got me there. So if I stick with the music, no matter what I do, now I've written a book. It's like, it's all music. And yeah. it, it keeps me real. It yeah. really does. Yeah. Now, you've been in the industry in one form or another for, uh, gosh darn near 50 years, huh? Close to it. I got, uh, in high school, I started playing in a band, which got yeah. me, like, on the real mm-hmm. low end of the business mm-hmm. in Houston, Texas. That was probably not long after the Beatles uh, not, showed up on Ed Sullivan, huh? Well, how I got into it, I, 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 I really didn't know if I could be a musician, but... I saw the Rolling Stones on TV. Oh. I think it was the Hollywood Palace. It was their first TV appearance. And I saw Charlie Watts. And I went like, that's who I want to be. You wanted to be a drummer, The right? way he dressed, mm-hmm. the way he played drums, everything about Charlie Watts went like, there's a slight chance I might could do this. You know, I was about one hundredth as good as Charlie Watts. <laughs> Hence, you know, I didn't last as a drummer forever. But it just, it just, even the color of his drums, I went out and bought a drum kit, the same brand and color as Charlie Watts. And I went like... And to this day, I still feel that way. I just want to be Charlie Watts. Right. I got right. to meet him once, and I told him that. He said, are you sure? <laughs> but he was really yeah, cool, there's, man. there's already one. <laughs> he was really cool. Yeah. Probably the coolest guy I ever met in my life. Oh, Ser- really? Seriously. Yeah. Just, yeah. He, just, he was cool, man. Yeah. He was just cool. He is uh, the epitome of cool, isn't he? he? Yes, he yeah. is. Yeah. And he dresses nicely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he always was the dresser in that yeah. band, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, that jazzer guy. That's right, know, man. So, right, he knew where right. it came from. Right, right, right. So uh, then you, uh, you ended up in the business. So actually, you were a writer first, right? Yeah. I, I mean, professionally, right. uh, away from the drums. I was in college, and these crazy friends of mine in Austin, I just ran into them on the street and said, we're going to start a newspaper. Uh, what, what can you do? And I, and I was a typesetter, too. And I said, well, I'm a typesetter. Maybe you could give me a job. And, went, and the guy went like, you know, if, if you set our type, I'll let you be the music editor, too. And I said, well, I've never written anything, really. And he, and he told me, he said, that's okay. The clowns here that work with us haven't either. <laughs> so I was their typesetter for a while, and I just started covering all the music in Austin. That was about 74, and Austin was just exploding with music. You oh, know, gosh, it, yeah. it went on and, to become yeah. the live capital. It music. is today, yeah. But mm-hmm. in the 70s, it was just it was even better in a way because nobody knew how great it was. We just yeah. kind of did it. But every night for years and years down there, you could go see different music all kinds of music by some of the best people in the world, but nobody knew about them, so they never got big. Right. You, just, you know, right. you go to a club and see Stevie Vaughan with 10 people mm-hmm. when he was starting, and it was just that way every night, and it just it felt like Wonderland at the time. And I look back on it, and I still can't believe it. Yeah. I tell people about it, and they go like, oh, you know, Muddy Waters wasn't playing the same night as Willie Nelson and the same night as the 13 Four Elevators. I said, yeah, they were. They were all playing at the same time. Did you know it at the time? I mean, a lot of people, they don't, you know, you look back and you go, yeah, that was a golden age. But it's sometimes you just don't quite get it. I mean, I remember that in the in the early 80s, uh, late 70s, early 80s with the punk movement here in L.A., you know, and it was like, oh, yeah, I, I guess that was a big thing. Uh, so, but it wasn't until afterwards did it become, you know, recognized. You know, probably from hitting my head a lot when I was little, I just, it, it made me kind of like, it made me realize when things were really good, 
you know, I knew you could observe that. I, you could, knew I, it I, in I real knew, time. I knew that how good it was because, you know, there were a few years in my life where things weren't so good. Mm-hmm. So by the time I got back to Austin and started getting into the live music scene and writing about it, you know, I felt not only that I was a part of it, but I just saw this uh, thing happening just from the inception of it that it kept growing and growing and growing, and I knew how great it was. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I still feel it's great in a lot of places, but if my rule is if you, if you can appreciate something while it's happening, that's what life's about. It's not always about oh, looking being back. Being present. Being present and mm-hmm. just knowing that, you know, if you're in a club listening to something you love, that's the best place in the world you could ever be right then. And that's the way I try to live now, not like looking too forward to what's going to happen or looking back, oh, wow, I was there when that happened. It's just like what's happening now. Mm-hmm. You know, I go see music to this day, and it just it still kills me how great it is and that I get to be there listening to it. So you, the thrill is not gone. Never, man. You know, I think once I do that, I'm probably moving on to the next plane. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Now, you also uh, you also had uh, the fortune of, uh, of hanging out with a couple of people when you were in high school, uh, Billy Gibbons being one. And then uh, uh, also Sterling Morrison from the Velvet Underground, oh huh? Good. I mean, how lucky is that? That is absolutely crazy. And you talk about, like, two sides of the coin there. Well, I met Billy. I think we were, like, in ninth, eighth or ninth grade. And uh, this girl that was in our crowd used to have parties, and she would hire bands to play in her den for the parties at her house. And one day I went over there, and the coachmen were playing. And Billy was a guitar player then, and we started talking. And then I had a band at the time called The Aggregation, so we started playing the same, you know, teen canteens and yeah. clubs. We'd even have these Battle of the Bands, and of course, you know, I tell people to this day, we never won one, and Billy never lost one. So we got to be really close friends back then. And in Houston at the time, this was like 64, 65, there was these great black nightclubs that featured, like one night they'd have Otis Redding, then they'd oh, have yeah. uh, James Brown, then they'd have Bobby Bland. And I would always see Billy at it. So there's like a little club of people, like probably nine or ten in that little club, that were always at those shows because we were drawn to that music. B.B. King played there a lot. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where Billy and I solidified our link because when you love the same music as somebody else, you're friends. Yeah, I know. And and there's no reason Mm -hmm. to ever break up being friends because you you still love the same music. (laughs) I see Billy now, and we're still talking about... B.B. King and the 13th Floor Elevators and Bobby Bland. You know, it's the same thing, you know, and it's, you know, God, what, going on 50-something years later. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. So, so. yeah, I was very fortunate, and uh, we we kind of grew up in the business together because mm-hmm. when he, his band started, I was friends with the manager, Bill Hamm, and he, we used to eat in the same little burger joint, and Bill, though he was older than me, had these lists of people he was going to send the ZZ Top tapes too, right. You know, right when they were starting, like 69. So we got close then. And then when I moved to Austin in uh, 1970, around 74, I met Sterling Morrison in a bar who had uh, been living in Austin studying for his Ph.D., but he'd quit the Velvet Underground three years before that. Mm-hmm. And when I met Sterling, I, I kind of knew who he was, even though he was kind of undercover at the time. He didn't want people to know he was in a band. He was an English grad student, so he was, he was going by the, his first name is Holmes. So he was going by Holmes Morrison. So we were talking at a bar, and I just looked over to him and said, is your name Sterling? And he goes, who wants to know? Because he really didn't want to <laughs> yeah. be outed. Right. So right. we got to be friends a little bit, and uh, I wrote a story about him in the Austin paper. And then I said, well, we've got this bar band called the Bizarros. Why don't you join us? And he's like, no, I don't play guitar anymore. I said, you know, well, just come see us. And within a few weeks, he said, I think we can play together. <laughs> but it's so funny because, you know, my dream was like, we got Sterling Morrison in the band. Let's do some Velvet Underground songs. So we'd rehearsed a few times. I said, Sterling, let's do some Velvet songs. He said, well, there's one you can do. Cool it down. I go like, well, what about the others? And he said, you're not capable of playing those. <laughs> Truer words are never spoken. <laughs> we well, are a bar band. <laughs> well, then let's get back to the writing, which is your real calling. Right. So uh, then apparently you uh, move out to L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually uh, begin at the L.A. Weekly uh, with, with the first staff. Is right. that right? They had started in 79, and they had a, a writer from South Africa writing about music. And so some of my buddies from Texas had already moved out here. They were working at the L.A. Free Press, but mm-hmm. the owner, Larry Flynn, had gotten shot. So they they <laughs> yes, shut down the Free right. Press, and so they started the L.A. Weekly. So mm-hmm. they called me up and said, you know, we got Larry this. Flint of Hustler Flint. Yes, fame, yeah. Mm-hmm. He bought the L.A. Free Press. Yeah. God knows yeah. why. <laughs> but uh, probably just to mess with people. But uh, they called me up and said, do you want to move out here? We need, we, need a, we need a real music editor. Can you come out here? And I said, well, I've never been to L.A. And they told me they'd give me 150 bucks, I think it was, uh, a month. And I said, well, I'm on my way. 
Yeah. And I got out here and I fell in. It was like right at the start of 1980. The first show I went to when I got here the next night was Exit the Whiskey. Wow. And I just I saw, them, that. I saw them playing and I just thought like, you know, again, I felt very lucky. And what I realized, like in certain cities are where scenes really start. Yeah. Like, you know, Memphis in the 50s or mm-hmm. Austin in the 70s. And, and L.A. in the early 80s is just exploding with bands, you know, from and they're all pretty new. The Go-Go's, the Plimsolls, all these phenomenal bands every night in these clubs. Mm-hmm. And again, I just went like, wow, I ended up in this scene. I couldn't believe it. So I wrote about all the bands. And when you write about a band, you kind of get to know them, you know, and yeah, hang out at after clubs and stuff like that. And so uh, from writing about them, I started promoting some shows at the Club Lingerie and then at the Cathay de Grand. And after those shows, somebody at Slash Records said, you know, you kind of seem like you love this stuff. You want to be our publicist? And I went like, yeah, why not? So I started being the publicist for Slash Records, Mm -hmm. which was bought by By Warner Warner Brothers, Brothers, which led me to Warner's in 86. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I worked at Warner's uh, 20 years doing publicity with... I mean, everybody knows Warner's was the greatest label in the history of labels, and I just happened yeah. to be there at the time when that original staff was still at Warner Brothers that had built it from the 60s. And being around the level of people that were running Warner Brothers in, from the chairman, Mo Austin, to the president, Lenny Warnaker, just phenomenal A&R staffs, phenomenal – every department had the best of the best. It, it was called the golden age, and I really – I used to go to work at Warner's and, like, I'd get to go to the gold mine, not for the money – but just what was going on in that building and the level of artists we had. I mean, mm-hmm. we had everybody from Prince to Madonna to the Chili Peppers to we got Elvis Costello. One of the first artists I got to start working with was Lou Reed. And and I just I, I really couldn't believe that I was working with all these people. Yeah, including I think you were uh, the personal PR for Neil Young for many yes, years. Yes, uh, my boss at Warner is a wonderful man named Bob Merlis. Uh, once I got over there in that department, he kind of let me start working on Neil, and then eventually Bob left. So I took over for Bob doing Neil's press at Warner Brothers. And then when I left Warner Brothers in 06, Neil called me up and said, come work for me. And I'm like, what do you want me to do? And he goes like, we'll figure out something. <laughs> so when you work for Neil, you do press. But Neil is probably the most driven, imaginative artist I've ever known. So he starts coming up with all it Before I knew it, he was building an electric car from his 59 Lincoln. That's right. Then he started Pono. That's and right. Then he, and, now and now he's got the, his the archives. Website, yes. Yeah, his archives it's has amazing. everything he's ever recorded it is. on his website for free for yep. six months. Yeah. I mean, that's Neil Young. You know, it's not like, well, how are we going to make money off this? It's just like... And very high quality. Very I mean, high quality. It's that, all the highest quality that you can, can achieve. possibly get. And it's um, free. Yeah. That's amazing. We used to sit around the office sometimes, and we were like, you know, we'd always wait. And sometimes it was like, oh, my God, here it comes. Neil would call up and go, like, I've got an idea. And his manager, Elliot Roberts, goes, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) But Elliot's been with me 50 years. He knows the gig. Yes, yeah. It's an incredible, you know, I'm doing some stuff with Neil again and hope to do more because just the handful of people still on the planet from that era in the 60s, I can't think of it a more imaginative and uh, soulful one. Daniel Neil Young. Because he really right. does do yeah. you hear like, well, he does it because he loves it. He loves it. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and he's you know, always willing to shed the skin. Right. And, uh, he's not afraid to fail. No. no. It's, it's like, a little like Bowie. You know, he's yeah. willing to just throw this out and start over with something brand new. Um, you, you watch people like that. Lou Reed was like that. As, as Lou once said, you know, when people would ask him, well, why after Walk on the Wild Side you didn't continue doing that? And he goes like metal machine music. <laughs> so, you know, these people are not driven. The real great artists are not driven by what it's going to get them. It's this, it's it's like a painter. You know, you look at the canvas and go like, now what? Yeah. And then they're done that on to the next yeah, thing. And it's, yeah. It's yeah. So uh, I wish I was a, an artist, but, you know, I'm, I'm more of an enabler. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I feel like watching artists create, that's the highest plane of human existence, I feel, no matter what art it is, whether it's movies, painting, Radio, whatever it is, just watching people do things that is so inspirational. Well, like, writing is an art. It, it is. It is. I'm still working on that. Um, apparently. So <laughs> I'm let's, still working on that. Let's talk a little bit about the book, Smithsonian Rock and Roll Live and Unseen. Uh, how did you first get involved with the vaunted Smithsonian? And uh, uh, has rock really fallen that low? Uh, weren't uh, we supposed to uh, issue these uh, type of institutions and things like that? Well, here's again, like life throwing you a curveball that you you feel fortunate. When I was at Warner Brothers, one of the bands I was just so honored to do their press was the Flaming Lips. 
really this Wayne coins. Wayne yeah. coin. I mean, I, I love the Wayne. They're they're, they're in their own <laughs> they're, world. It's it, it they is, might it's be Oklahoma, there. but it's another well, Oklahoma. Now you know, I know we talked a little bit beforehand, but thirteenth floor elevators was a big influence for you. Yes. So I can totally <laughs> understand why the flaming lips would work in there. So, so Wayne and I clicked right away. Uh, did their PR for about a year, and then they got a tour manager who sort of runs the show day to day. A man named Matt Litz. Flash forward twenty five years. And Matt calls me up and said, Bill, I'm, I'm the uh, director of marketing of the Smithsonian Books. Do you want to write a book? I went like, yes. Because <laughs> I was just leaving. I'd been at Concord Record a couple of years doing A&R, and I was just leaving there. And I thought, like, now what? You know, now mm-hmm. what's left mm-hmm. for me? And he called me out of the blue, and I thought, like, bang, man, there it is. And so he said, we're going to write this book. We're going to generate crowdsource photos. You can help pick the photos and then write about all the bands and artists we uh, feature. And I went like, let's do it. So on December 1st, 2015, a call goes out across the land asking the general public to submit their personal photographs from the rock and roll era. So so what happened next? The uh, fans and people, the photographers started posting their photos on the uh, Smithsonian website, mm-hmm. hugely trafficked website. And after about, I guess it was about eight months, they called me and said, okay, now let's start picking what we're going to do. It was by that time they had about four thousand. Yeah, they had right at four thousand. Mm-hmm. And so Matt Litz at the Smithsonian and I went. Well, let's sort of pick the bands that we think should be in the book. You know, because if it, it's not really a, a that's a, always the hardest job. It's, it's, isn't it's, it? it's, oh gosh, it's it's not strictly like a history of rock and roll, but it is sort of an overview. Mm-hmm. And so we we came up with about two hundred bands, and we started going through the pictures we had, and found the bands we really wanted to to use. And then they told me, well, that's too many for the size of the book, so you got to cut it down to about 150, which was tough. And I've made some enemies because everybody that's ever bought this book looks at it and goes like, well, what about so-and-so? So So I I always go like volume two. But so we started, uh, we narrowed it down to the artists we wanted. Then we started getting all the pictures together that we wanted. And then they gave me about a month to write the essays on each of the artists. So really, I was, I that was, was just one month of yeah. And I, it, there's a, there's about 140 artists. Yes, in yeah, there. and I'd sort of procrastinated a little bit because it's not that easy to pick pictures from 4,000 because they're all on links you have to open. It's not like having eight by tens in front of you and going through all that. So it it took me a long time to pick the photos with the help of this incredible photo editor Susan Brisk. So when it was time, like, well, now you have to write the book, there wasn't as much time as I'd liked, but I write best under deadlines. So I gave myself... <laughs> so it was good. That yeah, it said, was good. You got a month. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, okay, I got to write about seven or eight, mm-hmm. nine bands a day. Mm-hmm. So I would get up in the morning, write a few, take a break, write a few, take a break, write a few. And it just, it, it gave me this discipline. And they're not long essays. You know, they're no, like it's, about it's, it's, it's 500 It's a distillation uh, paragraph or maybe two yeah. of uh, of each of the uh, bands or artists yeah. uh, that were picked out of this. So what I would do, I would listen to the music of that band and really try to get in the frame of mind of what they accomplished and then sit down and write the essay. And then uh, luckily I had a very good editor to sort of clean it up a little bit. But it wasn't a belabored academic history of rock and roll. I mean, I'm not an academician. I think Mm -hmm. that's the right word. I'm a fan. Right. I mean, really and truly at heart, I'm a fan. And I tried to write from the fan's viewpoint of what made these bands great. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of look at it like uh, like one of those books of the intro of, of the pharaohs of Egypt, you know, and it uh, it kind of or the kings of England. You know, it, you know, here's here's the book and you picture book through it. And here's this pharaoh and this is what he accomplished. And this one and this one and this one, you know, and, ah, you know, you're missing a couple of the pharaohs, but the big ones are all in there uh, sort of right. thing. It's uh, it's kind of like that. With some amazing photography, and also I really felt like I wanted to throw in some surprises because you if, did, if, yeah. If people, yeah, I mean, yeah. and, and really looking at rock and roll like I have all these years, kind of almost from the start, the very start, I always felt there were some unsung heroes that might not have gotten real popular, but really contributed to how rock and roll progressed. And and people say, well, there's some blues in there, but how can you write about rock and roll with without, not without Muddy blues, Waters right. and Howlin' Wolf? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or how can you write about rock and roll without Johnny Cash? Yeah, so, yeah. And then you get into the 60s, like Otis Redding. Every rock and roll artist I've ever known loves Otis Redding. Up into Al Green and Aretha he's, Franklin. He's my favorite. Man. So I, I just felt like, well, if it's just a strictly you know, by-the-letter rock and roll book, 
people are going to go like, well, I've kind of, I knew that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to surprise people. And that's why, you know, my favorite band of all time was the 13 Four Elevators from the 60s in Houston where I grew up. And I, and I wanted to find something amazing about them, some images. And there was a man I'd known in Austin just really briefly. And I called him up and I said, well, you were around in the 60s. Did you ever take pictures of the elevators? And he said, funny you should ask. I've got these pictures from the 66 that nobody's ever seen. And so he sent them to me. And there's an incredible picture of the elevators, the full band. And then there's a picture looking out into the audience over the shoulder of their electric jug player. Uh, uh, right. And I looked in there. I go like, well, I know when I, I was at that show, I remember always being at the La Maison Club when they played. And I knew where I stood. And I looked in the picture. And you were there. There I am. You saw it. I saw, saw it. it. I went like, wow, man, that's kind of a little secret that I'll just keep to myself. But now here mm-hmm. I am telling everybody in the world. <laughs> hey, you heard that, Diggers. Uh, go and look up the 13th floor elevators in your copy of uh, Rock and Roll Live and Unseen. So so all the photographs, and as we said, you, you got 4,000 entries. And most are, in fact, taken by amateurs. Right. But uh, there are some known rock photographers like um, uh, Jim Marshall and uh, Bob Gruen and Dorian Bose. Uh, so what what is the mix? Is it about 60-40? Yeah, about right? it's about 60-40 uh, in favor of amateurs. Yeah, and why then, and how did you break that down? How, well, here, here's, how did we get to that? Here's what happened. You know, there, was, there were certain bands that we thought we had to have them in the book. Mm-hmm. And if you go back to the 60s, people, fans didn't take their cameras to those shows. You know, no. very, I mean, brownie cameras. There's a few people that gave us their brownie pictures. So there were certain eras that didn't really have fan photos, but of course, like the Beatles, you had to have them in the book. So we had to go to some pros that might have taken pictures from the 60s and, and some of the 70s before everybody got cameras. And we went to them and said, if you have pictures of such an artist, do you have some that you didn't sell over uh, okay. and over? And, mm-hmm. and so we, we really tried to make it so the fans that go through this book haven't gone like, well, I've seen that everywhere. Like, obviously, I love the Velvet Underground, so I thought, well, I want a really great Velvet picture that hadn't been seen. Oh, that is a great picture with the dancers in yeah, front. And, yeah. and so there was a man who did a feature story on the Velvets when they played this nightclub in New York called the Dom. And the New York Times had run some of his pictures, but not that one. And it's a picture of the band on stage with the dancers that used to dance with them with whips and whatnot. Yeah. But there was no – the drummer wasn't in that picture for some reason. So I had to, I wanted to get a picture of Maureen Tucker, their drummer, so we have two pictures of mm-hmm. the Velvets. Cause, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I just – I wanted to get pictures that everybody goes like, eh, seen that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, the book is big and beautiful. It's a full-color coffee table book and a padded cover, and it comes in at over 200 pages. Uh, it looks like no expense was spared. Uh, so walk us through putting the book together once you guys cut off the, the new photo entries. And uh, why and how did you break it down to the seven chapters that exist in the book? Well, we went, we went through the entire list. We'd gotten it down to 200, and we've compared those 200 to the best pictures of that had been submitted or we thought we could find. So there were some bands we just didn't have good pictures, nor could we find any that hadn't been seen too much. So they were not are not in the book. There's, oh. a, there's a few bands. I'm hoping for a volume two, mm-hmm. knock on wood. Hey, people, uh, go out and there and buy this so but, we get volume uh, two. So we, we kind of started that way. And then we just we did it in chronological more or less. I mean, it's not, like I said, nothing about this book is strict, like, Certain artists are in certain chapters, and people go, why are they in that chapter? I said, rock and roll is impossible to contain. Mm. Rock and roll was started and continues to be based on the idea of freedom. So I thought this book should be free, you know, like in terms of how it's structured. So you shouldn't get into it like, well, that doesn't go there. That's out of, out of whack. So, but but the end, the end criteria was, are, is it a great picture, and does it fit with the level of artists we want in the book? It's interesting when they sent me, they were sending me little JPEGs of the cover, which for some reason I couldn't blow up. So they sent me the the cover and I looked at it and I went like, that's a cool picture. I don't know who it is, but he's, you know, a cool looking guitar player. Let's, yeah, that's, that's a good cover. Let's do it. And then when I got a blown up version of the cover, I saw that the guitar player was Jimmy Page. And I thought like, oh. I, when, when the first six months of what I thought the cover was going to be, I didn't know who that guy was. <laughs> I just thought he was representative of rock and roll. 
And there's a there's a title page in the very front of the book. I thought, like, these two guys are great looking. I have no idea who they are. And it's living color. So sometimes I think it's just the picture itself that stuns me as much as who the artist is. And, and that's the mix we really wanted. Like, is it a great picture even if you don't know who it is? Mm-hmm. And I think we got close to having almost every artist covered by that kind of image. I, I, I want to bring up one picture, and then I want to talk to you about a couple of others in, in there and, and get your take on uh, on some of the pictures that, that you find really exciting. But to me, when I opened up the book, and the one of the first pictures is Chuck Berry to open Chapter 1. It's a really interesting picture because it's Chuck sitting in a record store in Waco, Texas. You know, not exactly a liberal bastion in 1957. And he's surrounded by adoring White kids, it's amazing. I mean, I, the the heart of that picture, I think, that illustrates something, is that back then in the fifties, especially in the South, including Texas, the races didn't integrate. No, they they were never. Mm-mm. I mean, unfortunately, most of the African American people were either service people or just they were in another part of town and you didn't know them. But Chuck Berry was one of the first rock and roll stars, so they somehow got a record store in Waco, Texas, to use him as a promotion. And to fill the store, they brought in a busload of elementary school kids. And that picture comes from a archives of a, of a photographer who had died and had thrown all of his negatives away. And a guy found them just as he was doing that and bought them from him. So uh, his, his name was Jimmy Willis, and he was Ann, Governor Ann Richards' uncle. Oh, really? He was a photographer in Waco, Texas, and he had all these pictures. And we picked five or six just because they'd never been seen. And that picture with Chuck Berry and the white school kids, it just it shows you... The power of rock and roll. The power of rock and roll and the coming change that would come when the races started to integrate. Yeah. And I thought, if, if rock and roll and music has done anything in America that is powerful as huge cultural change, it's that it, I think it taught white people not to be separate from African-Americans because back I grew up in Texas and and there were no African-Americans in our school. They rode the back of the bus. I mean, it was bad. And when rock and roll... Jim Crow, Jim Crow. That's Mm -hmm. right. And when rock and roll and soul music and blues and all, when we started going to the clubs to see these artists like B.B. King and James Brown, it showed that we're all the same. You know, I think rock and roll is one of the great levelers of people's what they think are differences. There are no differences. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that music gets enough credit for doing that for America. But it really did change things. It was more than any social programs could ever do. Because you can't make people to integrate. But if you show them the, the beauty of each side, it's a natural integration. And that's what music did. And that picture of Chuck Berry with the white school kids who had probably never been around an African-American man that Certainly had any stature. Certainly not adoringly no, like that. I, I mean, the, the look in their eyes is stunning. Well, you know, you hear roll over Beethoven and you're free. Right. <laughs> right. No matter what no color matter what you call you're, you're, right, you're free. Right, right. And I, I, it's also, it seems like it's a sneaky way to get Chuck in first because you, you actually do start with Elvis know, in, but, in, in, in uh, the, the first chapter. And I knew that wasn't fair. But <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted Chuck first, but I also I, I had this theory where, you know, having been there and watching what was and hearing what was happening in 55, 56, Chuck Berry came first, but it was Elvis that really exploded the music so everybody heard it. And he was on TV. At that time, Chuck Berry was not on TV, so you didn't even know how great Chuck Berry was. But when Elvis played on the Ed Sullivan Show in October of 1956, to me, that was not surely not the birth of rock and roll, but it was sort of the neutron bomb of rock and roll. Yeah. With yeah, kids yeah. around the country who had never seen Elvis Presley and probably would never see him during the 50s saw what he was about and his just level of energy and, I got to say, a genius. It was, it was it's breathtaking. It really is. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, uh, well, you know, television uh, really helped uh, launch uh, this art form. Uh, they kind of c- grow up together. We talk about that in our uh, original podcast, uh, Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast, uh, that, uh, you know, those two uh, mediums were linked uh, as they, they grew, and, uh, and it really made a, a big difference. So, Well, that's why I, I also have another theory, you know, so, several of my crackpot theories, but <laughs> I have this theory that— you listen with your ears and your eyes. Oh, yeah. Because when you see music either on TV or especially live, it does something to you that just the music itself alone 
doesn't quite, when you see something great live, you never forget it. It's imprinted on your brain forever. And I think part of that is is you're hearing it with your eyes. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned that uh, you know your your moment that you remember is obviously when you're five or six years old and Elvis on uh, on television. What's your what's your first musical moment that just solidified that this is what you wanted to be, what you did when you were a teenager? Because that's when we really decide our music. Yeah, I, I think I really think it was in 1963. My older brother took me to the African-American nightclub in Houston, the Palladium Ballroom. I was 13 years old in 63, and we saw James Brown oh. live with the full orchestra, the whole show, four and a half, five right. hours. Just, just after just, Live at the Apollo. Then. Yeah, just, uh, that, we bought that record somehow, and, I, and, and, and he and I went like, well, he's coming. we got to go see him. And we went to see him, and I just, I've, I'm getting chills right now. It was, and I just went like... This, without a doubt, is the greatest thing I've ever seen. I was raised Catholic. I used to go to church. The priest couldn't hold a candle to James Brown with saving souls. I mean, it was religious. It was absolutely religious. And I think he, you know, James Brown came from a gospel background. Oh, yeah. They were saving souls with that music. And I think... Well, he also, you know, he learned from Ray Charles. You know, let's yeah, say, let's face it, Ray's the, Ray's the one who yeah. took the music and said, hey, you know, I see what them gospel guys are doing. I want to throw that into to the secular music. And uh, wow, what a smash, huh? So We got yeah, to see Ray yeah. Charles a couple of years later at the Sam Houston Coliseum in Houston. And uh, I'll never forget if they, they, they carried him out. In, a, in like a fireman's chair, two guys had oh, him sit, yeah. didn't put him at the piano because, you know, he might have been a little bit oh, enhanced. at that time. But, you know, he sat yeah. down and played, yeah. and the audience just went so insane. It was yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. It was you, – you're around those audiences, too, and it was just it, – it was, it was like levitation. Mm-hmm. You felt like you were levitated when you see shows like Jackie Wilson or Otis or Sam and Dave, any of those people, the great rock bands, the Stones I got to see in 65, and it was, it was equal – to anything else I'd ever seen. It was that exciting. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have many myself uh, that uh, fit in that category. So it's, uh, it's, it, it is. It's, it's, and, and you can find it in these photographs, uh, especially, again, because all of these photos have not been shown before. They, you know, there's similarities. There's a lot of that where I'm like, oh, that looks like, oh, but, but, but it is. It's a, it's a unique photograph that you've been able to uh, curate here uh, with, uh, with the Smithsonian. Well, in talking about the Rolling Stones, I'd gotten to see them in 65. Uh, we had to take the Greyhound bus from Houston to Dallas to go see them. But I was a fan. I had to go. Mm-hmm. It's the first time in Texas for them. And no, that's not true, but it was the first big show they'd done. They played the Teen Fair in San Antonio, Texas in 74, <laughs> 64, excuse me. So anyway, we went up to, to, to Dallas to see them, and it was just, just as great as I ever thought it would be. But when I was looking through pictures for the book, I didn't find anything that captured that. And I knew a guy in Baltimore. He was a psychotherapist, and we were talking about the book. And he said, well, you know, I have, I have a picture I took at the Stones in 65 in D.C., which was two weeks before I saw him. And he sent me the picture, and I went like, that's the picture, and that's the one in the book. It's the Rolling Stones live in D.C., where Mick Jagger is down on his knees singing, right? And Brian Jones is playing a keyboard, which mm-hmm. you didn't see that often. Mm-hmm. And I thought, like, that's the kind of picture I was really looking for. Wow. All right, so let's pick out uh, photos from each of the uh, of the seven sections. Uh, you know, after thousands of hours of looking at these, uh, which are the ones that still speak to you? So, you know, let's start with uh, with chapter one. Uh, that's called the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. Well, the Big Bang, you know, is what I, I call it because the way country and blues collided mm. in music. And, and that's kind of what Elvis went to school on and all the great artists from that era. Oh, yeah. I think the one that, that really got to me hardest besides the Elvis just singing without a guitar, and he has this demented look on his face. and the well, cur- he's, he's waving the, the hips there, right? Yeah, and, and it's just like usually Elvis kind of had that pretty boy and pretty like not like feral look but this picture is when he was really going for it i don't think his manager colonel tom parker let this look out much but there's a picture of it's Elvis. a bit of a growl it's a bit of a growl and you can just tell he's he, he's possessed he's holding the microphone like he didn't seem too much and sort of swiveling but when i saw that picture i thought like that's the elvis i remember seeing on tv and and we found that so that for that era and that uh, chapter i would have to say it's a picture of elvis singing without the guitar right so he didn't have that prop that he used sometimes to stay normal he was just going crazy 
And, and uh, that is the first first official yeah. photo of Chapter One, yes. uh, the, one of two. Elvis, you know. And let me ask you a question. This so some uh, artists uh, got two pages, and some got one. Was was that deliberate? How did we get there? And you well, know who 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 was the final arbiter? And was there a committee? And you know uh, you know was there money thrown at you? <laughs> there, there was some artists. Like Elvis, we just felt like we're so important oh, yeah. to the evolution they mm-hmm. had to get to. Mm-hmm. And then there were some artists that we just had enough great pictures to warrant it being two. Uh, and there were some that only got one page that, looking back, probably should have gotten two. Mm-hmm. So, again, like I said, we weren't that rigid. It's sort of like the images themselves demanded the coverage. So it all started with that. It yeah. started with the photo. What does the photo say to us? Mm-hmm. And then what can we do with it? And there's another picture that I think is real important in the first chapter. It's a picture of Richie Valens, who, oh, you know, yeah. unfortunately know didn't didn't why. live long, no. but uh, just a major influence on a lot yeah, of rock the and picture rollers. Picture from the surf ballroom, and mm-hmm. we found a, a a photo of Richie on stage playing what ended up being his very last show. Right after right. this, the night before the plane crashed. After mm-hmm. this uh, concert, the next day they got on the plane that uh, crashed, and of course he yeah. lost his life along with some others. But and and people don't the worst really, worst. Coin toss in the history of mankind. Mm. Yeah, people don't really know what Richie Valens looked like on stage much because he just he didn't perform that much, and when he did perform, there's rarely any cameras. Right. So I thought that was really an important picture to use in the in that first section. All right. Well, let's get to the second section, which is the uh, titled the the British Invasion. Well, you know, any book with covering the '60s has to start that decade with Bob Dylan. Because he was a game changer oh, yeah. for so many artists. I mean, mm-hmm. at the start, you wouldn't call him a rock and roller, but just his use of lyrics was something oh, that, our, that elevated our, our everything. Poet, uh, laureate. I mean, yeah, he, he is our Shakespeare yeah. of, uh, of this age. It elevated everything. And, and uh, it was in 1970, let me make sure I get this right, 76, when I was at the newspaper in Austin, uh, the editor was a friend of the Dylan people. And they were going through Texas with the Rolling Thunder Review. Mm-hmm. So being socially conscious, my friend, the editor, recommended he, Dylan and the Review play a boys' school, a reformatory in Texas, just as a favor to the kids. So Dylan, the entire Rolling Thunder Review, went to this place called Gatesville School for Boys, where uh, boys who'd gotten in trouble were put, and played in, I think it was like 110 that day, outside in the heat. And oddly enough... The boys who were watching the concert didn't really know who Dylan was. They were young teenagers. You know, they'd been like two in the 60s when when he first hit. So they kind of watched with bemused attachment, detachment and didn't really get too riled up. But part of the review then was Joan Baez and Joni Mitchell. And when they came on, the boys went crazy because they probably had not seen a girl, girl in, a in a while. So <laughs> they were like all into that and started, got up and started dancing. And but, two quite uh, attractive yes. uh, ladies at, the, uh, at that time. So, so uh, this picture shows yeah. uh, Dylan on stage with these boys, you know, with long hair and bandanas wrapped around the heads, the back of them, just kind of sitting there going like, who's this? Right. But I thought like that, that was a... It, it, to me, it shows, too, Bob Dylan's consciousness that he would do this kind of show. Mm-hmm. And he demanded it not be publicized. Mm-hmm. And I thought that, you know, that really took – I learned something that day from Dylan's people. It's like not everything is to enhance yourself. No. He did that as a favor to kids who never got to see live music. Because, you know, there was probably a period in Dylan's life where he could have ended up in a reform school, if not prison. <laughs> Being a little bit oh, of the little outlaw Bobby Zimmerman, himself. I don't know about that. So. You never know. <laughs> All right. Uh, the next section is what's you, what you call acid, incense, and balloons. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting title. Well, you know, I took those lines. There's a great Jefferson Airplane song on after bathing at Baxter's called Sunday Afternoon, which was written in honor of the love-in in San Francisco, which happened on a Sunday. So it's sort of a reference to that. But, like, again, it's just kind of a period of the late 60s into the 70s of when all these artists were first exploding. And I, th- I think one of my favorite pictures from that section, I was at this, when the Grateful Dead first started, I was a big fan because I just, I heard this improvisation in rock and roll I'd never really heard before. And we were trying to find a picture that hadn't been seen because Deadheads, as we know, are, oh, are insane. Geez. Every picture that's, a, you know, just like home pictures. Every recording, everything. every picture. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's all covered. <laughs> so, but we were talking to a lady in Detroit who had been married at the time to John Sinclair 
the leader of the White Panthers oh, and manager yeah. of the MC5, Lenny Sinclair. And she mm. said she had a picture, because she used to take pictures in the 60s, of the Grateful Dead playing in Michigan. So we got it and looked at it, and I thought, like, that's one I've never seen. And that's in the book. Yeah, a beautiful color picture uh, yeah. uh, of them. Uh, quite colorful, especially Jerry's pants. Yeah. <laughs> well, they were fearless. I mean, they, you know, thank God there weren't anything like fashion consultants back then. Right, right, right. And then uh, Inner Visions and Outlandish Trips. Uh, that's getting us into the 70s, would yes. you say? Yes, and I think, you know. Again, not following the hard and fast rule. Right, but, but in the 70s, you know, the psychedelic scene had sort of calmed down a little bit, and people like James Taylor and Joni Mitchell and singers like that, uh, you know, incredible songwriters and and uh, singers, but, you know, they were kind of looking within more. And my favorite of that era was a, a singer from Ireland named Van uh, Morrison. I, yeah. I got to see him in the early 70s, and to this day, I, I just, there's, it's one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. And I wanted a great picture of Van, so we went through the ones that had been submitted by the fans, and we found one from uh, that period. And he just—he's looking off to the side of this, the audience because he did not like to look at the audience. I remember going to see him, and he was always looking down or looking back. He was, he was probably painfully shy. And there's this great, huge black and white white picture taken by a fan of Van, and it just—it captured that inner soul that he has and has to this day. I'll, I maintain that he's one of the great artists of our lifetime. And he is known for that, but sometimes doesn't get quite the credit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like he's stuck around too long. Like a lot of artists are not making records now, but he's still making great records. But th- this captured the period of when I first saw him live. And I thought, like, you know, I used to call him Van the Man because he was sort of like my guy. A lot guy. of people I just, say Van I just, the Man. I just yeah. think there was something about what he did that, no one else has ever done so. That's really my electric favorite. when you're in the room with him. Yes, just it's mm-hmm. almost like you feel plugged in the wall. And sometimes I remember that first time I saw him, he had like a nine-piece band with horns and female singers. It was like a soul review, and he came out and played. He was at the Armadillo World Headquarters in Austin and played for three and a half hours himself. And you could tell he was just lost. He was just off in that world that he could get to sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then he's done shows where. You know, he came out and somebody yelled boogie and he sat on top of the piano, lay down on top of the piano, played one song and walked off stage. I've seen him in all different mm-hmm. iterations of mm-hmm. what he does. Mm-hmm. And this picture of him, I just it just brings back so much emotion to me. You, you know, Van always reminded me a little bit about somebody else we talked about just a minute ago, and that was Otis Redding. Yes. He's another one that could just yes. go to this place that you were like, take me there. Yes. The oh. ecstasy... Right there in front of you. They don't uh, call it soul music for nothing. Oh, my God. Now, now I, I believe you actually helped produce uh, the uh, Live at the Whiskey um, yes. uh, uh, box set. Is yes. That, that's true, right? With yes. The Otis Redding. Uh, with several versions of Satisfaction, uh, I, Rolling Stones, that he uh, he has made his own uh, in that uh, in that incarnation. Huh? It's it's interesting. Right when I got to Concord, they were, I was in A&R, and they, what do you want to do? And I said, well, let's look at the catalog. And they said they had all these tapes of all three nights of Otis at the Whiskey mm-hmm. in 1966. And it turns out it was only like a month after I'd first seen him in Houston when I was a teenager. So I started listening to these tapes, and they were just gorgeous, man. It was just the band was on fire. He well, was on it's, fire. It is Booker T in the MGs. No, oh, it's, 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 it's his road band. It's the road band. It's the right, road right, band. Right, right. But he would come out, and, and uh, he did two sets a night for three nights. And he would repeat a lot of the songs, but they didn't sound the same. So going through the tapes, I said, we, we, we can't boil this down. It has to be everything. So it's a, it's a three-night live set. I think it's a total of five CDs yeah. at the Whiskey. Mm-hmm. And, and that night, one of the nights that uh, he was playing, I got a lot of uh, details. Dylan came with Robbie Robertson. And uh, Dylan was trying to get Otis to record Just Like a Woman. And I think Otis said something like, well, there's a lot of words there. I don't know if I can remember all those words. <laughs> but in, in, in another night, you know, all the Hollywood stars were coming out because— yeah. Well, yeah, the whiskey was no, known for that. In yeah, the and, days, and the right? manager of Otis was a man named Phil Walden who had started Capricorn yeah. Records. Mm-hmm. And he told me once, he said, we wanted to break Otis to a white audience. Yeah. This was a year and change before Monterey popped, mm-hmm. and, but we didn't know how to do it. But we'd heard the whiskey— was the place in L.A. And it was before soul artists had really started playing the whiskey very much. So they booked Otis into three or four nights there. I think it was a total of four nights. Three were recorded. And I thought, like, that's historical. It is. That was the crossover 
from soul music into a rock and roll audience. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and a year later, he, pl- he played Monterey, and he was a superstar. He only yeah. lived now another, that with Booker D and the MGs. Yeah, and he only, and he only lived another five months. You yeah, know, so yeah. it was unfortunate. Yeah. But it, and it then really creates the, the crossover song, you know, uh, uh, Dock of the Bay. You know? Released so, after he died. Uh, yeah. 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 All right. So uh, the wild side moves in. Yes. Well, for me. Now we're getting into the, the later 70s, uh, CBGBs, yes. the punk movement. Uh, things are, are off the charts now. You know, this this really probably uh, was my most personal choice because in that section, uh, we put Lou Reed. Who had been already in the book is the Velvet uh, Underground. Is, is, isn't he the only artist that is actually represented twice? Well, in there's the book? a couple of tricky ways we did that. Uh, <laughs> Eric Clapton's in twice, yeah, once for Cream, Cream and mm-hmm. once for Derek and the Dominoes. Oh. Brian Eno's in twice, once with Roxy Music and once by himself. Mm. But Lou, I thought, you know, I, I really do believe Lou is one of the most influential artists of all time, even though, he, and some people say he's sort of a cult artist. But I felt like, you know, without. Lou and the Velvet Underground, there might not have been punk, and there might no. not have been all these other eras that mm-hmm. came into being. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to find a picture of Lou, and I, and I worked with him for for 25 years, so I knew his eras very well, but I thought, like, I've seen every picture. So we really started yeah, that, looking that hard must have for been something. really difficult that to was hard something unseen. Because, you know, he was in New York, part of the Warhol crowd who had cameras. They had oh, film in yeah. the 60s. All, all, film so, and everything. So he was photographed probably more than any other artist from that era because he was just, you know, New York media capital of the world. So, but we found a photographer that had a, had a contact sheet with a picture of Lou kind of pursing his lips. And I thought like, you know, when he had the dyed peroxide hair, I thought like, that's that's the toughest Lou Reed ever got. And we were able to get that picture and put it in the book. So it's, it's a really personal favorite of mine that uh, I also got a picture of him shortly before he passed away. And, you know, he had aged considerably. And the thought was, you know, I'd like to use that, too. But then I thought, that's too personal. Mm-hmm. You know, a man like a month before he dies yeah. and when he really did look not well. And I thought, like, that's just an image I need to keep to myself. So this this is the one from that chapter that really hit me the hardest. Safety pins and flashy spins. <laughs> I don't know where I came up with these titles. It was, <laughs> it, it was kind of uh, like right out of the blue. They said, we need them tomorrow. So I just went like, okay, here's seven chapters. <laughs> and I thought for sure they go like, this sucks. They like they, them all. They're, 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 you're like, wow, I learned from there. You never know, man. Don't like make it too hard on yourself. But uh, there's a picture of the Sex Pistols that I think, because to me they were sort of the epitome of punk. And punk really did change everything in music. It was sort of like music had gotten bloated, arena rock, and then the Sex Pistols showed up for, what, two years and brought it all down back to the nub. Mm-hmm. And uh, With for, some help. With, with some, some help. help. With some help. But but they know, the, New York uh, is where punk yeah, actually Ramones, yes, please. Yes. Ramones, yeah, who gets CBGB's, two pages in the book. Uh, you know, That's yeah, right. Yeah, is, uh, is, is, is the flashpoint. But, yes, and then uh, Malcolm McLaren, uh, you know, builds upon that and creates They were this. the poster boys oh, of, they punk, were. of punk yeah. rock. Yeah, I mean, uh, especially after their TV appearances yes. in Britain, and you know, basically giving the bird labels. to the to the to the Queen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they knew what they were doing; they were making people mad. Yeah, but I thought, like, and I'd gotten to see them at a at a, a country and western bar in San Antonio in '78 called Randy's Rodeo. And it was without a doubt, maybe to this day, the that's wildest the, show. That's the last. Is that the second last? To, second to last second show. Second to last. Oh, right. Sid Vicious came out and hit a guy in the head in the audience with his bass. Johnny Rotten came out, and literally, he thought being in Texas, the audience was cowboys. Mm-hmm. So he started yelling at the crowd, you cowboys are all faggots. And he thought he was like really riling up the crowd. It was a Latino audience, because that's who came. They liked rock. Cowboys didn't come see rock. So anyway, it just, you know, they started throwing stuff at him, and it, people were bleeding. It was just out of control, and I thought, like, there has to be a great demented picture of Johnny Rotten, and we found one. Because he was a genius at media with Malcolm McLaren. He yeah. knew how to make they, they worked it. Yeah. yeah, they worked it. I mean, they were, yeah. they were okay musicians. They weren't great. I mean, he surely wasn't a great I don't great know about singer. Sid Vicious, but yes, the no. other guys were, were okay. <laughs> but they needed Sid yeah. because he's the guy who took it to the absolute limit. Yeah. And, I well, mean, yeah. yeah. Maybe, he took, he took maybe it too far. over the top. Yeah, yeah. but he was, and he was bleeding that day. He carved something on, on his, his chest. chest. and. <laughs> You know, he hit the, somebody threw an uh, unopened can of Lone Star beer at him and it hit him in the chest, so he whacked him on the head with his bass drum. The stage was two feet off the ground, no security. 
and it really people could have gotten killed. I remember walking in the club that night, and there was a young guy with a switchblade out carving a swastika into the forehead of a photo of Ray Price. And I thought, like, San Antonio was a rough city. Yeah. Very rough city. And, in fact, I know when the Stones played there in 74, they said it was their favorite city in America because they'd go back to their hotel room, watch the news, and it was just one murder after another. <laughs> and, you know, they thought they were tough guys, right? So I thought, like, that, that's, that's of all the shows I've been at, that's the show that people really could have gotten hurt because yeah. everybody had knives. Wow. You know, it could have gone bad. I mean, Sid Vicious could have gotten killed that night. Uh, yeah. But it just, I don't know, the luck of the draw, he escaped, but not for long. But he live another year. But yeah, uh, not, yeah no, about another but, year, yeah. You yeah. could tell, though, he was on a mission to hell. He was just out of control. So that, right. that picture of Johnny Rotten just says that that's what was going on then. It is. That is a big moment. So beats and bravado, beats, bravado and beauty. Yes. I think for that... I, you know, there was there was a lot of talk about not putting hip hop in here, but I felt we needed it because rock and roll people listen to hip hop. Yeah, and, I do. And yeah. there's and there's photo there's some uh, photos from uh, a man we found, uh, Raymond Boyd, that had taken pictures of N.W.A. and I thought like they were there close to the start, mm-hmm. and I thought like Is well it, certainly when it exploded. exploded. I mean they weren't. It's not Grandmaster Flash. Right. It's not the Bronx, but uh, but it's definitely right. uh, it's definitely when 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 hip hop rap music begins yeah. to ascend uh, and 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 eclipse and as it has it yes. eclipsed uh, you know traditional rock and roll and Grandmaster Flash too. I remember the first show I ever saw. Of uh, that was them. I think in 1980 they played a, a club in L.A. called the Country Club. Believe it or not. Oh, uh, and, Reseda. Yep. And mm-hmm. the message was just out, and just you know, just it was so exciting to be again a new era of music coming in yeah. right at the start. Mm-hmm. And at the time, you some people discounted it. We're like, well, that's not music. You know, it's like turntables and tapes. But that's it's, what it's, they used to say about rock and roll. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> the excitement level of the music yeah. that I yeah. think is yeah. the most important thing. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, w- I would say for that, I w- I'd say it would probably have to be Grandmaster Flash. Okay. Even though I love NWA, yeah. but they're actually yeah. in the next chapter. Yeah. And then you end the thing with uh, with a picture of Brittany Howard uh, from Alabama Shakes. Right. Well, I, I look at rock and roll as this huge continuum of music that takes a lot of detours and dead ends and whatever happens, happens, and but it, it continues to move forward. You know, it's like that old adage, the circle remains unbroken. And I think when I, when I heard the Alabama Shakes, I went like, well, here's a band, you know, really kind of just learning their instruments from the South, where rock and roll was definitely born. Mm-hmm. And fronted by an African-American woman. And I thought, like, there's something that provides sort of a historical summation of what rock and roll is, that all these things can happen. It doesn't have to be glamorous. You don't have to be a virtuoso. But as long as you feel it deep enough, you can get on stage and make a real impact. And that's exactly what the Alabama Shakes did. I remember the first time I heard him, I just went. I was in A&R then. At Vanguard Records, and we're like, we have to find this. And by then, it was too late. Yeah, somebody in the South had found them first Mm -hmm. and put them on their label. But you, oh, I remember the first time I I heard her. I'm like, what is that? That that was it's it's that moment that grabs you right down your throat. You know it. You starts pumping your heart. So it's 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 a visceral reaction. That then filters up to your brain, and you know when when those two things collide, you know your heart explodes. Mm-hmm. That to me is what rock and roll is. When your heart starts beating fast, and you fall in love with something you've never heard, never seen, don't know anything about, but you know it in an instant. And to me, when I heard the Alabama Shakes, I went like, "They've got that. They've got that." There's you know people say, "Well, what's happening with rock and roll?" And I go like, "It will always be here. You know, it might not be huge, and you might not know about it, but it's happening out there." And Thank goodness they got recognized for how great they are. Well, that was going to be my next question. So, you know, where is rock and roll today? Where is it heading? Is is 60 years for an art form enough? I, I think we're just getting started. I, I mean, I go to the record stores. I see things I've never heard in the racks. So sometimes I'll buy them and listen to them. And I'm always amazed at how incredible sort of all the permutations just keep expanding. And sometimes it goes back and you recycle older things into new things. But I really believe that as long as kids want to be free, and why wouldn't they, there's going to be great rock and roll. 
And we we might not like it. It might not be our thing. Like a lot of EDM music, I don't listen to much. Mm -hmm. But I, I can feel the power in it. And just because it's not my thing, I tell people, like, just like what you like. You know, there are no rules in rock and roll. One of the reasons rock and roll is great is, like, everybody's a winner. You know, there's not at the end of the day you go, like, they lost. You know, it's not like sports where somebody always loses, right? Right. Half the teams lose. Rock and roll, I think everybody wins. And if you're only doing it for fun, more power to you. Because that's where it's going to keep going. Somebody's going to invent a new sound that gets taken to another level, then another level. Then that'll crash, and then we'll start over with something else. So, uh, you know, as a rock and roll historian now, because uh -oh. let's face it, you're, you, you're, you're in the Smithsonian. So, <laughs> so put yourself out 500 years, you know, like, uh, like us looking at the Italian Renaissance. You know, wh where does rock and roll fit in the history of art? I think rock and roll is the greatest social movement of the last 60 years. I think it explains more about how the culture opened up. I mean, music took us into the hippie era and the anti-war movement and a lot of the ecology movement and the women's uh, liberation movement. Rock and roll was the impetus. It was like the spark that allowed people to dream that things could be different. Because you see somebody like Elvis Presley and you go like, anything's possible. That's 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 just that's it. And as, as uh, artists started writing more and there were more original musics that were invented by all the bands from the Beatles on, I think it gave the social dreamers the ability to think big. I really think that's what music did. It gave everybody a chance to go like, either I can do that or I can really love that. It, and, helped, and, and it, it helped to keep pushing the ball forward. It really it? did. And it still is. Yeah. It still is. That's why you know, here we are in two. 2017, and I keep thinking, like, there's going to be some social explosion in music that we aren't, haven't heard yet, but it's got to be coming because when times get the hardest is when music becomes the most important thing, really and truly. I mean, Bob Dylan songs, I think, helped change the world. They really did. They helped give power to the anti-war movement at the very start. And without that, who knows where we might have ended up. You know, we might, uh, we might all be living overseas. <laughs> Well, Bill Bentley, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, it was a pleasure, uh, We really man. enjoyed fun. having you here on Deeper Digs and Rock. Yeah, man. Let's do it again. What I tell you, great interview. Thank you again, Bill Bentley, for spending time with us and sharing some of your stories. Once again, the book is Smithsonian Rock and Roll Live and Unseen. There's a link where you can purchase it right online at our website, rockandrollarchaeology.com. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you again soon. Until then, keep up the rockin'. Hey diggers, Christian Swain here with a short pause for a great cause. We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love. From the Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit 
littlekidsrock.org and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs, in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rockin' right into the next generation. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 